How's everyone doing tonight? Good. Yeah. I love those moments, right? Moments where we just get to, I feel like it's so beautiful, so rare. That we get the chance to just come together as a community and, and sit in that moment where we just sing, like, man, there's no place I would rather be right now than in the love of God, right? So beautiful. And so I appreciate you guys giving me a chance to step into that moment and, and just share a little bit about communion with you. And Ryan asked me a few weeks ago to talk about communion, to lead in communion. Uh, it was very timely because I had just finished, uh, you know, I go to lunch every week uh, with a friend, and we sort of just pour out to each other sometimes while we're eating food. Like, we eat, and then we pour out, and we eat, and we pour out. It's like, oh, I just emptied myself, and I got to eat more. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. That's one of the reasons my ring won't fit me on the ring finger anymore. It's a different story. But as I, as I just thought about communion, I just thought about, man, what is it about a shared meal that carries so much significance, right? A better question might be, why is a shared meal so powerful? And I couldn't just get that out of my mind, that, that when we gather together and we share a meal with somebody, it, it's this unique opportunity to spend time with someone you don't know, where, where strangers become friends, Right, where you sit down and begin to exchange stories with people. You get to know who they are and get to tell them a little bit about you. And it's a moment where you get to fill yourself up, not with just good food, but where you walk away and you just feel so hopeful and so excited about life. Has anyone ever had those moments? And I used to remember uh, years ago at Awakening was uh, much smaller. Afterwards, all of Awakening, because it was like 25, 30 people, would go out to eat. And just share that experience together. And I just remember walking away and remembering, man, there's nothing so awesome as getting to spend time with people around food. I don't know what it is, but it's just a beautiful experience. And I wonder sometimes when we do communion, I know that at Awakening we do it every week. We do it every single week. We have the elements in the back and in the front. I wonder sometimes if we lose the weight of that significance because it's available to us. Right, this meal that we're sharing with one another. And my hope is that tonight as we talk about the significance of a shared meal and then we partake of communion together, that we can begin to rethink what it means to do this as a community and what God is trying to do in us and with us. And so uh, I want to just answer the question, why are meals so significant? And I think it's because they remind us that what sustains us is more than just food right? What keeps us moving in life is more than what we just put into our bodies physically, tangibly. It's this experience with another person living, breathing, frustrated with life just like you are, walking through life just like you are, but still hopeful, knowing that you're not alone in this thing that sustains us. It's, it's about people, it moves us forward. And I think that our scriptures actually teach us this very same thing. I was uh, reading through a book called A Meal with Jesus. And the author, Tim Chester, makes this amazing observation about the role of food in our faith. And I just want you to listen to this. One of the first things God does for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is to offer them a meal consisting of the fruit of every tree except for one. The climax of the exodus, an act of salvation commemorated in a meal, is when the elders of Israel eat with God on the mountain in Exodus 24. 
Isaiah, a prophet, promises a messianic banquet of rich foods that will never end in Isaiah 25. And Jesus anticipates this perpetual meal with God in the feeding of the 5,000, a meal that had more food at the end than it did in the beginning, right? The Last Supper looks forward to the time when Jesus will eat with his disciples in the kingdom of God. And then the Bible story ends with the meal as we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And he ends with this. Every time we eat together as Christians, we are anticipating this hope. Let me just say that again because that's so powerful. Every time that we get together and eat is an anticipation of the hope that we have in Jesus. At the center of every shared meal, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you've gotten to that place or not yet, at the center of every shared meal we have is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of hope. And we get to do that together. It's just so, it's just so exciting to me. And I believe that what God does is he teaches us that sharing a meal with someone is actually one of the greatest acts of grace, one of the greatest acts of compassion, one of the greatest acts of, of faith, of hope, and of love that we can ever participate in with another human being. Because it's invasive. It invites people to come into our space, and then we get to interact with them one-on-one. There are not a lot of things that we get to do with other people that are like that. And so, uh, as we just talk about communion tonight, I want us just to turn to Scripture and just see what it says. And then answer for me, I'm just such a linear thinker sometimes. Answer a few questions like, oh, what is it? What is the Lord's Supper? Where does it come from? What does it mean? Why do we do it? And so if you have your Bibles, I would ask for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. And if you don't have them, don't worry. You can take a look at your notes. We have them in the notes on, on the uh, second page, I think. But I just want to read this brief passage because I think it captures in simplicity both the power and the significance of this shared meal in our faith called the Lord's Supper. Verse 23 starts like this. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what is the Lord's Supper? It's, it's known by a lot of names, right? The Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. What is it? What is that? Well, practically, in very simple practical terms, the Lord's Supper is just a meal shared by a community of faith, your community of faith that honors the life and the work of Jesus, right? By taking some elements, some very tangible things like food, uh, like bread and wine or grape juice or whatever else is we have. I think we, up here we have wine and grape juice. But the bread represents his body and then the, the wine and grape juice represent his blood, right? And so I know that that might sound like a very strange thing to you because it kind of is a strange thing, right? I didn't grow up in the church, and maybe some of you haven't either, but when you hear that, like, oh, man, what, taking the body and the blood of a, of a man? Like, I, I, don't, I don't see him. Where is he? Do they hide him in back until the end and then bring him out? And what is this practice? I know that the, uh, the symbols might be a little weird to you, 
but the practice isn't that foreign, right? How many of you have birthdays? If you have a birthday, raise your hand. Man, it's like in each service, like 50% of the people have birthdays. And the other 50 just came into being. That's kind of like your birthday, right? I don't know. How many of you, how many of those of you who have birthdays have a birthday cake on your birthday, right? So just like 10 of you, you have to have birthday cake on your birthday, right? Birthday cupcakes count, cake pops count, uh, nothing else counts. Nothing, anything green does not count. Right, but we do this cake thing to celebrate life. Right, we, we, we cut this cake up, it's delicious. In my culture, we get a huge buttermilk frosted cake and then we cut it into lots of pieces and we shove the person's face into it. It's awesome. But then you give it out, you pass it out and you share this meal together to commemorate life, celebrate life, right? In hopes of the life that you will have and in celebration of the life you did have. So it's just, it's the same thing, basically, right? Symbolically. But where does it come from? Verse 23 in the Gospels give us a little bit more context, but it says, for as often as, uh, what is it, verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. The Lord's Supper finds its origins in the last shared meal that Jesus had with his disciples, right? Those 12 people who he invited into journeying with him, in a relationship with him, to, to get to know him, to grow with him. And this meal was shared on the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of those people, right? And eventually that betrayal would cause him to, to go to the cross. And that cross, his death, and his resurrection are symbols for us of life, of hope. But that's where it finds its origins. And on that night, he commanded his community of believers, his disciples, to continue this practice of coming together to eat and drink in remembrance of him. And so all the things that we do when we take communion, all of the symbols, all of the actions, all of that find their root in Jesus. That they all point back to Jesus. That still doesn't tell us really what it means. Like, what does it mean then? Can we take it? It's bread, it's wine, it's grape juice. We are pointing to Jesus. Okay, but what does it mean? And I think from here, here's where the true significance of this particular meal we're about to take begins, right? Only God, only God could have done this, but only God could have written two very different stories in history and then in one point of history caused them to collide into one another and then begin to unravel what it means and what we think to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with each other, and to be in relationship with the world. Only God could do that. It's amazing. And uh, the first story begins in Jewish culture, where the most significant and important historical event in their faith started with and is commemorated by a shared meal. Right? Each year, people of the Jewish faith would come together around a shared meal, and in the midst of this ritual practice of clearing the table and then getting cups of wine passed, the elders would begin to tell a story, a very powerful story of salvation, of power, of this God of the universe who brought them out, who heard their cry for help, and then brought them out of oppression. And the story was called the Passover. Right? And in the Passover, is, is told to recount Israel's cap freedom from captivity, culminating in a series of plagues in which God completely and totally demonstrates his power over the Egyptian gods and the Egyptians. And on the last night of the last plague, Israel was commanded to prepare one last meal in anticipation of their departure. God said, I want you to have a shared meal together 
But I want you to get, this is actually to get ready to leave. You're about to leave this place. It hasn't happened yet, but you're about to leave it. And this meal required the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. And the blood of this lamb, God said, put it on the doorposts of your home. So that when God came through uh, Egypt, their home, wherever he saw this blood, it would be spared. Right from this plague. And that night, that same night after that happened, over a million Jews, men, women, children left Egypt in freedom. They were freed from oppression and they got to walk right out so they could go and worship God. This is a story that they would tell their children, the elders would tell their children during this time. And Exodus 12, 26 actually has God telling these elders what to tell their children when they got this. So they're all eating and the kids are like, wow, what, is this, what does this mean? And the elders were to say this, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. Because what else do you do, right? Celebrating this meal and this truth of the power of God is revealed. From that day forward, the Passover would provide a ritual framework for the largest story of redemption that included the exit out of slavery and into freedom to meet with God. And that is the first story, right? The second story begins with the Last Supper of Jesus. And in this story, in this moment, Jesus takes this common Jewish experience and instills it with a profound redefinition of who God is and what he is doing and what he has done and what he promises he will do, right? What, God, what Jesus does is that he takes the focus around the Passover dinner and transfers it onto a person himself. In the middle of this dinner that they're having, Jesus says, this is no longer about what God has done in the past. It is now about what God is doing in your life right now and what he will do in the future. It is amazing. It is God inviting you to participate in a shared meal with him now and for the rest of time. That's what Jesus was doing. And when Jesus commanded the disciples to take the bread and to take the drink, he was actually foreshadowing the sacrifice that would be necessary for this shared meal to take place. What he was doing was he was demonstrating the love of God for his people. What Jesus was going to do, and the disciples had no idea yet, was to offer himself as a sacrifice that was necessary to allow anyone who believed in Jesus to share a meal with God. That's what Jesus was doing. And I just think that's incredible, right? That God, that a God of the universe is not distance is not waiting, but is actively participating in human history so that he can show us his love in any way possible so that we can be in a relationship with him. The forgiveness of our sins to be reconciled to God. That's a beautiful story. That's what all this means. That's what taking communion means. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. I think we just miss that sometimes. And it's okay because all of us, I know I'm, I'm the same way, all of us, we have lives that are, that are busy and, and it's grinding and we have bills to pay and things to take care of and, 
and things to figure out about our future, about what we're doing, about all of these things. But the reality is, is that God wants us and, and is calling out to us, and we desperately need this to stop for a moment and share a meal with him together. Right? So I just want to answer the last question. Why then do we do this? Why do we do communion? I think it's because of the redefinition of what God has done and is doing and he will do. That that moment in time doesn't belong just to those disciples. Right? This communion with God. That moment actually belongs to us too as a community of faith. That we, that all of us tonight, right here in this space, might experience the hope of God. Right? It doesn't just belong to the past. It belongs to us now presently as well. And the hope of God doesn't leave us stranded at a table waiting to be fulfilled. Right? The hope of God welcomes us to participate and to be nourished, to be refilled with an understanding of who he is, what he's done, the grace that he offers us through the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. That's, what, that's why we do it. That's why we do it, to experience the hope of God. One of my quotes that I, that I put in here is uh, from John Calvin. He writes, If anyone inquire of me respecting the manner that we experience this hope of God in this moment presently, I shall not be ashamed to acknowledge that it is a mystery too sublime for me to be able to express or even to comprehend. And to be still more explicit, I'd rather experience it more than understand it. Because I think what he knew is that when we come together to share a meal with God, that it is more, when we do commune together, that it is more than just about these symbols. It is more than just about putting something tangible into our mouth and tasting the dry bread on our tongue and feeling the, the wine or the grape juice go into our throat. It is about meeting with a person, with the God of the universe, who intimately knows you and loves you, knows your name, knows where you've been, knows your past, knows your present, and still loves you. Still loves you. While we were sinners, God demonstrated his love. Right? That's, that's what we get to experience. And, and the only way to do that is to slow down. Because that's what shared meals do, right? They, they force us to slow down. They force us to lift up our heads from the daily ground and, and look into the eyes of the person we're talking to and say, how are you doing? How are we doing? What are you dreaming about? What's your future? What can I pray for you about? What are your hopes? How does that taste like? Right? So engage with one another. So the, there are three things I think communion allows us to do that we desperately need to do in order to be refueled and nourished by the Spirit of God. And the first is, oh, I, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I, I, like I said earlier, I, I tend to think linearly sometimes, like A, B, C, one, two, three. Now this goes in front of that, that goes before this. And, and as I thought about, okay, how do, I, how do I talk about these next three things? I was just like, man, I just can't talk about one without talking about the other. Well, not thinking about the third. And so I'm just going to say it all at once and then kind of explain it, but then invite you. Hopefully that gives you the freedom to, to, ex to experience and to think about either one of them out of order. Right? Just to give you the freedom to say, this is not a one, two, three, but a 
holistic experience. The first is to remember. The second is to proclaim. And the third is to celebrate. Right? We are to remember. Why do we do this? To remember right, what God has done. To remember what he has invited us into. To remember this gospel of Jesus and what he's promised us, what he's done for us, and what he compels us to do. Uh, this invitation to, to go out and to invite others to participate in this. Right? To remember, and sometimes we, we do need to stop and remember the whole picture. Not just, not just the forgiveness of sin parts, the I'm, I'm guilty and you've forgiven me, but the also you love me and you've called me onto this mission and this empowerment of the Spirit to remember all these things. Like I said earlier, God doesn't leave us stranded at the table of fellowship. He gives us the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit to live in us and move through us. And so we need to stop and remember that. Remember what Jesus did. Forgiveness of sins, yes. Why? So that we can be in a full relationship with God. That includes a spirit of power. Right? That includes a love of God and grace. It demonstrates his, the death of his love for us, and I just think we need to remember that. The second thing is to proclaim. Verse 26 says, For as often as you do this, you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I, don't, I don't know if, we, if we've never known this or we've forgotten this, but when we take communion, it is, it is an actual public proclamation that when you take it, you believe what God has said about himself, what God has said about Jesus, what God has said about humanity, and that you want and you agree with that, and that you want to participate in that whole movement, right? And that act of proclamation, I pray that the act of proclamation begins here, that it doesn't end with us sitting in our chairs and, and thinking and meditating on God, but that it begins there, and that as we move into life, that we would continue to proclaim that same gospel, right, in word and in deed. That we would look for opportunities to share meals with people, to love people, and then proclaim that truth to them, and with them, and along with them, even if they deny it. I think a lot of times we just do it for the yes, I believe, and then, okay, we're in. And if you get the no, I don't believe, they're like, oh, I don't want to be friends anymore. I'm done sharing meals with you. But I think the exact opposite should be true. Right, that when, when we proclaim his truth, we say, God loves you. I don't know if I believe that. Okay, I'm still going to be your friend, and we're still going to have meals, and we're still going to hang out. We're still going to get to know each other, and I'm not just going to leave you. God never left us, so, so I'm going to walk with you. That's an actual proclamation of the same gospel, guys. It's true, and, and he says, whenever we do this here, we're proclaiming all these truths until Jesus comes back. And while we wait for him to come back, we should li live, and I like what Ryan said earlier, eager anticipation of what he's going to do. We should live in eager anticipation that he will glorify himself. How does God glorify himself? By renewing humanity. Right? Every time someone says, I believe, I receive, I'm a sinner, I repent, I want your love. Every time that someone does that, God is glorified. So if we're to live in that anticipation, what it means is that we need to participate with God in moving that gospel forward, right? And so as we do that, it's a third point. We should learn to celebrate. 
A lot of times this is just very a passive experience, I feel like, sometimes. We, we take communion, and then we're very self And I'm like this, so I'm like the worst, okay? I don't want anyone to feel like they're being judged, because I take communion, and I go in a corner behind the curtain and curl up into a little ball. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I just anger it, you know, yell at God in my head, like, why are you doing this? But sometimes I think that that's where we end it. Like, okay, I'm just going to be reflective and pensive. But I feel like we're missing the whole celebration of what God has done, right? What is it? We, we, like Israel before us, must live in God's eager anticipation that he's going to do what he says he's going to do, and that is to bring people to him. The full knowledge of who he is and what he's done. And, and as we wait, I, I just want us, even tonight as we get back into worship, I want us to celebrate that together. We're a family, man. We should celebrate that together. And, and not feel like it's... it's only private, but this shared meal as, as a big family and celebrate what God is going to do. We should, we should believe that God is going to do these things that we're praying for, that thousands of people would come to know Jesus through awakening in San Jose, that 50 years from now when we look back, we're like, why, why are there so many Christians in this area? Well, it's because 50 years ago we were praying for something like this to happen, an awakening of a new life in Jesus. Right? That's why we exist. We should celebrate that truth. And I, and I just wrote C.S. Lewis' last quote up there. You know, I, I don't know and can't imagine what the disciples understood our Lord to mean when his body still unbroken and his blood unshed, he handed them the bread and the wine, saying they were his body and blood. And he says, I, I can't imagine or, or know what they thought. But the command, after all, was take and eat, not take and understand. And so I just invite you tonight, if, you, if you're a believer in this truth and this gospel, to come and just take and experience the hope of God anew. You would pray that, that the Spirit of God would fill you afresh, that he would light a fire in your soul, a passion for him that cannot be abated, that, that there's nothing that you can do to keep this down, that when you go out into the world Monday through Saturday, that people would come to you and not know why they're sharing with you the stories that they're sharing with you. Not understand that even when you're depressed or sad, you still seem to have hope. That, that, you, that you still have life in you in the midst of craziness. And so I would invite you as believers to do that tonight. Come, remember, proclaim, and then let's celebrate together, right? And tonight, and I know, and I know that this is true even tonight, if you are here and you do not know Jesus, maybe you've met Jesus and you're still, and you're still not sure, I remember, I remember that space. I remember when I would come to a church and listen to the guy talking up front about Jesus. I'm that guy now. It's so weird. I remember having no idea what he was saying. I don't know what you're saying, man, but you're happy. <laughs> you seem like you have some answers or hope. I know there's some of you tonight, you have no idea what I'm saying. You, you got stuck in the blood and bread at the beginning, and you're like slowly making your way out before you get caught. But I would just invite you, if you're here, and you're longing for hope, and we know you are, if you're longing for purpose, for meaning, for joy, for love, I would invite you to, to talk to one of us in the back. Ryan will be back there, I'll be back there. Let's talk so that one day we can share a meal together. 
not just here in, in San Jose, but in eternity with God, his family. So what I'd love for us to do is just as the band comes up, they'll play for a few minutes and just give you some time uh, to take communion, right? Uh, and that just coming up and taking the bread, like I said, there's two in the front, two in the back, taking the bread, dipping it in the wine or in the grape juice, maybe both, I don't know. But just taking time then to remember, to recognize that this is a proclamation. And then after a few minutes of, of time with God where you've stopped and, you've, and you're just listening to the voice of God in your life, and to come back and then join us in, in just utter celebration for what God is doing in our lives now because of what he has done and because of what he promises he will do. I just invite you to do that tonight. And let's pray. Father God, I don't know where people are coming from tonight, and I don't know the hearts of men or women. Um, Father God, I just would pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to, to begin a work in us that we long for but cannot do for ourselves. There's this thing inside of us that we want to get rid of. There's a person that we see in Christ that we want to become like to be. And I would just pray tonight as we, do, as we take this shared meal together that we would remember who you are, that we remember what you've done and are doing, and that we would have hope for you, what you will do, that we will live like, fully into this proclamation of your gospel and that, God, I pray, I pray that you would just unleash your spirit in us. I pray that things that are binding us would, would come off of us, our souls, they would be removed, God, that we would freely worship you in celebration tonight. That we would not care what people are thinking but care more about meeting with you one-to-one. And God, I know that the only way for that to happen is for your spirit to come. And so, God, send your spirit. Fill this place with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Nourish our souls that we might go out into this world and shine a light so bright that people would come to know you deeply. They would come to live a life sharing meals at your table for the rest of eternity in hope. God, I just thank you for this community and we wait with eager anticipation of joining you in the things that you are going to do in this world. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.